Welcome to Understanding the Law. I'm your host, Peter Lamont, and I'm a business and personal law attorney practicing in the state of New Jersey. I'm also the principal of the law offices of Peter J. Lamont. The firm has offices in New Jersey, New York, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law is a weekly radio broadcast where we discuss a variety of legal topics that affect our listeners. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. As always, we welcome calls from our listeners. If you want to discuss any of today's topics, or if you have a separate legal question or issue that you'd like to discuss, we encourage you to call uh, into the switchboard at 347-855-8831. We typically try to get through as many calls as we can. Um, occasionally, we might not have time, and so we encourage you to follow up with an email, which will be given out at the end of the show, so that your legal question can be answered. So, today we have an interesting show. Um, today's topics are some relatively um, new areas that I think affect most of our listeners, both business listeners and uh, you know personal uh, individuals. The first topic that I want to raise is something that was recently brought up in the New Jersey uh, State Superior Court, and it involves texting while driving. Now, everybody knows that, regardless of where, you know, what state you're from, that texting while driving can be a very dangerous and, and deadly um, event. We've seen the television commercials, and uh, we've seen all of the uh, campaigns and the things that come home with our kids in school about the dangers of texting while you're operating a vehicle. And it's, it's relatively clear. It's self-explanatory. If you are watching your cell phone and texting and trying to push the little button so that you can communicate with a friend, you're obviously distracted and you're not able to give 100% attention to the road. So that makes sense. I can understand, and I'm sure most of our listeners can understand, why texting while driving, while you are the operator of a vehicle, is a bad thing, a dangerous thing, and that there are legal consequences uh, in most states if you are, in fact, caught texting while driving. Well, the issue that we're going to talk about today is relatively unique, and it's the first time that this issue has been raised in any of the courts across the country. And this issue involves liability when you are texting a driver of a vehicle. Now, you yourself are not in the vehicle. You're not operating the vehicle. You're home in your house, and you're texting your friend or mother or spouse while that person's operating a vehicle. And in the course of that text exchange, the driver of the vehicle is involved in an accident, and it could be a pedestrian accident or an accident with another vehicle. What is your responsibility as the texter, if any. Now, prior to this decision that uh, I'm going to mention in a few minutes, I would have said to you, probably nothing. And I'm sure that most of the listeners agree that, you know, if you're sitting home texting and the recipient of your text is driving a vehicle and they get into an accident, how is that your fault or your responsibility? And how can any liability be attributed to you, the texter? Well, the Superior Court in New Jersey uh, had a case that went up through the appellate division, 
and uh, the appellate division, in discussing this particular case, which it, it's not exactly on point, but the appellate division references this idea that if a texter who is not operating a vehicle knowingly texts someone who is driving or operating a vehicle, and that person gets into an accident, that the texter is partially or can be partially liable for damages. Now, what's the important point here? The word knowingly. Uh, the appellate division specifically stated that there must be knowledge. So there's got to be some sort of intent. Um, it's either knowledge you should have known because you know you, you were aware. Um, well, I, let me rephrase that. It's either you have direct knowledge, you knew the person was driving, or you should have known. So let me give you an example of how this would work. If your spouse gets into the car and drives away to go to the grocery store and you're home and you text him or her and say, I forgot to ask you to pick up milk as well, and the person's in an accident, that would be knowingly. You knew that she was he or she was operating a vehicle at the time you sent the text. So that is knowing that somebody is operating a vehicle sending a text. Now, what if you are texting to your friend who is driving home or a parent to their child who's driving home from a party or a friend's house and you are not aware at the time you send the text that the recipient is operating a vehicle? And um, they respond to you and they say, Yes, I'm on my way home, I'm in the car now, or I'm driving, or you know, something to that effect. Something that would indicate to a reasonable person that the recipient of the text is operating a vehicle. And you continue to engage that person in texts. And that person gets into an accident. Well, under this appellate division um, analysis, you could theoretically be held liable for damages and injuries sustained by the other person who was involved in the accident. Why? Not because you had specific knowledge, but because you should have known. So there's two distinctions here. Knowledge, direct knowledge that you know the person's in the vehicle, and the other, um, the other way that liability could attach is if you should have known. If somebody says, yes, I'm getting in the car now, and you continue to text them, you should have known that they would be operating a vehicle because all of the communication leading up to that um, for a reasonable person would have indicated that they were going to be operating a vehicle. Now, the case that this came out of is uh, a case by the name of Kubert versus Best. <clears throat> In that case, the appellate division did not find that the texter had any knowledge of the fact that the recipient of the text was operating a vehicle. And it was kind of a, a side note that the appellate division touched on. Wasn't really the crux of the argument. It was just something that came up and um, the appellate division is, is creating essentially new law here. So what does this mean for you? Well, not only should you not text while you're driving a vehicle. I mean, that's pretty clear. You need to be cognizant when you send a text to somebody at least in the state of New Jersey, and I would imagine that this is going to, um, you know, work its way through the country the way that it always does, 
when a law like this is introduced. It's, it's clearly in the public's best interest. Um, when you're sending a text, you need to be aware of what the recipient is doing. Now, it creates an added burden for you. It absolutely does, and some might argue that it's not fair. But the reality is that under this analysis, you could be responsible for damages. So what does that mean? Well, that means if the person that you're texting, the recipient of the text, is involved in an accident and causes property damage to another vehicle or worse, uh, personal injuries arise out of, of the collision, when the case is tried or the case is arbitrated or, or even you know settlement negotiations, you, the texter, are going to be brought into this discussion and there's going to be analysis. Did the texter know at the time that he or she sent the text that the recipient was operating a vehicle? And if the facts prove that you did, you could be apportioned liability, which would mean you would have to pay money damages, monetary damages, you or your insurance company. Uh, so it's an interesting development and certainly something that we should be following. And, um, you know, everyone out there should just be aware of the potential danger if you knowingly send a text to someone who is operating a motor vehicle. Now, you might be wondering, well, how can somebody tell if I sent a text at the time of the accident? And believe it or not, it's fairly simple. Um, in most lawsuits now, subpoenas, especially uh, motor vehicle accidents, the, well, the opposing party or the plaintiff in the case will typically subpoena the records of the cell phone carrier if there's reason to believe that cell phone usage had any sort of an involvement uh, in the accident. And the cell phone providers are obligated under the law pursuant to the subpoenas to produce the records. And depending upon the company, um, you can see the timestamp of the text messages to whom the message was sent and from whom. So it is, believe it or not, relatively easy to determine who actually sent the text message and what time. So, uh, again, this is something we're going to follow, and, and it's a developing uh, issue, but you must be aware of it because you could be sitting home sending a text message, and the next thing you know, you are named in a lawsuit, and, uh, you know, the damages are extremely high, and, and now you've got some sort of, of monetary liability. You're going to have to hire an attorney. You're going to have to notify your insurance company. So uh, be careful and understand that this is something that I would believe uh, to be uh, going to be moving rapidly throughout the country. So that's uh, something to note and something we're going to follow. Now, the next topic that I want to talk about is something that is um, relatively overlooked, and it's an interesting topic, and it deals with hiring a personal trainer. So summer's over, and the fall is here, and... Um, most of the people that we've talked to, either clients that we represent in well, gyms or health clubs, they've indicated that there's a bit of an upswing in membership and attendance at gyms, primarily because the weather is getting a little bit cooler and people are preparing for the upcoming holiday season where there's no holds barred and there's lots of, of cookies and cake and alcohol. So they're, I guess, getting in shape now. That's a good strategy. Um, but what I want to talk about is selecting a personal trainer and what 
legally is involved when you're get when you get injured at a gym and the obligations of the personal trainer and the, the gym owner. Um, so what's interesting here is that for the most part, someone who signs up for a membership at a gym will go in, there's a stock contract, uh, oftentimes not read. The only issue that you're looking for are the payment terms so you know how, how you know the payments are going to be processed. And over the course of your training, you are either approached by a personal trainer or the gym has these services that they promote and offer, or you realize that you haven't been in a gym in a long time, or maybe this is your first time, and you want to make certain that what you're doing is safe. You want to make sure you're doing it the right way so that you don't get hurt. So you go to the gym management and you inquire, and they hook you up with a personal trainer. And you have your first session, and, uh, you know, he'll take you, he or she'll take you through some exercises and set up an appointment for next week, and, and that's how it goes. That's the typical, I've hired a personal trainer scenario. I've gone to a gym, they've hooked me up with a personal trainer, I met with him or her, I like them, and they're going to give me some exercises to do. Now, what happens when two, three weeks into the program, you get hurt? You rupture a tendon, you injure your ACL, uh, you tear a muscle or, or a tendon. For the most part, you've got no recourse. At least that's what you think. Oh, you know, I went to the gym and I've engaged in these activities at my own risk. And maybe I went too heavy with a, with a weight or maybe I went too intense with an exercise and, uh, and I've been injured. But you've hired a personal trainer. And that personal trainer has a duty to you to make sure that what he or she is asking you to do in the course of the exercise routines is appropriate for you. So something you need to know is that in the event you're injured while participating in, in activities at a gym, under the guidance of a personal trainer, you may have a lawsuit against both the personal trainer and the gym. Now, that's very important to note because a lot of times people will just um, take the blame on themselves and not do anything to bring some sort of legal action against the gym or the personal trainer. But that talks about what to do if you get hurt. I want to talk about the um, sort of due diligence that you need to do when hiring a personal trainer and what a personal trainer or gym is responsible to provide to you as the um, as the customer of the gym. So you've seen, I'm sure, throughout the gyms and in discussions with trainers, the certification process and how they're certified trainers and they're certified in plyometrics or certified in strength training. Um, but the unfortunate reality is that most of us could go on the Internet, take a half-hour course, pay a few hundred dollars and receive a certification in physical fitness or aerobic exercise. My point is that it's a fairly unregulated area. So just because a trainer has a license, it really does not mean anything. You need to make sure that the license that they hold or the certification that they hold is from one of the top 
agencies or entities in, in the country. And there's a list of them. Um, if you're interested in obtaining that list, you can email me directly at P. Lamont, it's L-A-M-O-N-T, at Peter Lamont, ESQ.com, and we can provide you with that list of certifications um, that you should be looking for. There's only a handful of them. So that's step number one. Trainers should be certified. You should just, you know, not accept somebody who happens to, to look good or be physically fit um, or, or has the characteristics, the physical characteristics of what you want to achieve. So um, that's step one. Make sure they're certified. Now, step two, when a trainer meets with you, there should be an initial consultation. And the purpose of the initial consultation is to get to know you, get to know your limitations, your expectations. And it's got to happen in a, um, a, a very formal manner. It's not enough to just walk in and meet your new client as a personal trainer and say, oh, how are you doing? What do you want to accomplish? Do you want to get bigger muscles? Do you want to have more endurance? Do you want to lose weight? Okay, well, I can help you with that. that that's not sufficient. There actually is an, an indicator, a test, a form that certified personal trainers typically use, and it's called a PAR-Q test. And really what it is is an assessment form that a trainer would give to you and ask you to fill out. And it, it, it contains a lot of information that's relevant to helping the trainer develop a program for you. And that's the next step. After they perform this assessment or this initial valuation, they need to understand what your needs are, and then they need to put it down into, into a program. Um, I, I've seen far too many personal trainers um, just start working with an individual with no program in place. It's just off the top of their heads for the moment. Here, let's go do this. Now, go do this. Um, and that's something that needs to be addressed because when the trainer develops a program for you, that needs to be on paper so that you can see it and understand what it is that you're going to be asked to do during these workouts. Now, once the workout's underway, of course, you know, the, the trainer has an understanding of what it is that they've asked you to do, so they don't need to carry around that list, that program format, and say, all right, you know, next, check it off. But they do need to follow that, and you should be able to see what program they've put in place for you. Now, in addition to this PAR-Q questionnaire and the development of um, some sort of, of written program for you, it's also important that your trainer asks you about medical limitations. If your trainer is not asking you about medical conditions or medical limitations, then I suggest that you look for another trainer. A trainer should be looking out for you, and if they know that you have a shoulder injury, uh, for example, um, your shoulder tends to pop out when you extend your arms over your head, and if that trainer doesn't know that and they're asking you to do an exercise like uh, an overhead press where you've got to push your arms up over your head and you pop your shoulder out or you, you get injured as a result of it, now, that's his fault. That's his negligence and liability. Uh, it could have been prevented had he inquired about 
your physical limitations. What are your, your physical limitations? Do you have any medical issues? There are people that have pacemakers. There are people that have had a heart attack or a stroke or high blood pressure. And oftentimes, a trainer will overlook that. They won't even ask those questions. And it's really important that you make sure that the trainer you're hiring can, can ask those questions and gather that information. It protects you as the trainer's client. Now, conversely, trainers who might be listening to today's broadcast, you have to understand that liability that um, may attach for your negligence, it can be significant. Uh, a lot of times, gym injuries require surgery. And just as a general statement, accidents or injuries that involve surgery tend to have a higher dollar value and tend to appeal more to a jury. So you need to reevaluate where you are as a personal trainer. Are you certified? Are you certified by one of the top agencies? Um, do you follow the procedures that I just explained concerning assessment forms, medical forms? Are you getting medical clearance certificates or letter from the doctor um, advising you that it's safe to train someone? A lot of, um, of cross-training has been going on recently. It seems to be the trend, a lot of this high-impact stuff, uh, boot camp stuff, and it involves a lot of very quick, very aggressive movements, plyometrics, jumping off of boxes and then springing back up. And that has a serious impact on knee joints and knee ligaments and tendons. And if you're not aware that the person you're training may have had a prior knee injury, and you ask them to engage in a plyometric activity, and they blow out their knee or they rupture an ACL, you're responsible for that, and you can be sued. So from a personal trainer standpoint, you need to understand that you've got to ensure compliance with industry standard. It's also recommended that personal trainers have some level of insurance coverage. And uh, it typically is a form of errors and omissions or professional liability coverage that would extend beyond what the gym might offer you, if they offer you anything. Um, some of our clients who are personal trainers, they've advised us that most often there are no, no, there is no insurance coverage. They're essentially either independent contractors or they're just permitted to you be in the gym and train clients, and then they give a portion of uh, their their fee to the gym owner. So, you know, you need to reevaluate what you're doing. And it might seem silly or it might seem like a waste of time, but believe me, when you end up being sued and the damages are in excess of $120,000, uh, you're going to thank me for going back and, and and taking the time to evaluate your coverage, your certification, and your pre-training procedures, including assessment forms, obtaining medical history, and, and learning from your new client rather than just jumping into it and doing it. So it's really important. It's important for both the clients and for the personal trainers. If you'd like more information about that, uh, topic. Of course, you can email me the email address that I provided, or if you have a question, you're a trainer and you'd like some additional information as to how to set up your pre-training uh, routines or what information you should be seeking, 
um, you should give us a call at 973-949-3770. We can give you an overview of what it is you should be focusing on. We can provide you with some links. Uh, we'll post the number at the end of the show again so that you have it. All right, I'd like to move on to um, our, our weekly news brief. So the first news brief I want to talk about is uh, the uh, ruling last week concerning gay marriage in New Jersey. And, you know, I think most of us believe that it was only a matter of time before this, this happened. And certainly um, gay rights is something that is important and relevant in today's world. Um, you know, we're, we're not in uh, the 1940s and 50s, and, and obviously everybody has rights, and these rights should be um, afforded to them. And so it's nice to see uh, a, a change in um, especially the, the court's analysis of whether or not uh, same-sex couples should be permitted. So for those of you who, who don't know, and I, I can't imagine that there's anybody out there that doesn't know, last week a Superior Court judge in New Jersey ruled that um, the state of New Jersey must allow same-sex marriages starting October, I believe it was the 15th. And that's, that's you know, a landmark ruling. Uh, I can't remember the last time that a Superior Court judge has had that sort of impact and uh, affected people in the way that this judge did. And obviously, a lot of same-sex couples were, were very, very excited and uh, gay rights advocates were excited because finally change and, and this is great and New Jersey's moving along in compliance with some of the other states that have already accepted same-sex marriage. Um, and obviously there's the benefit for the same-sex couples of having all of the rights that are provided to heterosexual couples. Um, we're talking about financial rights and uh, insurances and that sort of thing. But what's important to note here is that celebrations are, are going to be placed on hold. Uh, we talked last week uh, on some of um, the blogs that Governor Christie was planning to appeal. And yesterday uh, there was a, a news announcement that New Jersey is seeking a stay of the order uh, that is requiring the legalization of same-sex marriages. So what does that mean? Well, they're going to appeal. And uh, in preparation for the appeal, because the date that the judge had selected as the mandatory start date is rapidly approaching, um, they're seeking some sort of injunctive relief. The state is saying, wait a minute, let's stay this ruling until we have had time to file the appeal and argue the issue. So the date, the October 15th date, um, that's, that's right around the corner, um, it's going to be on hold. And there's going to be litigation at the appellate level concerning whether or not this ruling is legal and binding. So, you know, the point is, is that this isn't over. I think that for gay rights advocates and, and for uh, same-sex couples, I think we're nearing the end of the battle. I think that um, you know, the decision by the Superior Court judge was, was really a massive turning point. And I think that this is the, the final stage of the war. So, you know, entering the final battle, and it'll be interesting to see how it plays out with Governor Christie, um, you know, clearly being uh, 
against same-sex marriage. Um, and if you want more information about this, again, I advise you that uh, you know you are free to contact us. Because what's interesting here is the designation or the difference, the distinction, I should say, between the idea of allowing same-sex couples uh, to to marry versus the current distinction that the state has uh, that only affords minimal coverage for same-sex couples. And, and it's interesting um, to see how that progression has, uh, has moved along. So we're going to follow that closely, and obviously we'll talk about that uh, probably next week once we know what some of the, uh, the briefs that the state submitted say. Uh, the next thing I want to talk about is um, something that's very, very exciting for everybody. Uh, you'll be very happy to know that the Kardashians are off the hook um, in connection with a class action lawsuit that was filed in New York concerning the sale of or the endorsement of this diet product. Um, so this was a Southern District of New York case. The judge threw the case out primarily because there is a very similar case pending in California, and it's nearing settlement discussions and uh, possible resolution. So the judge essentially said, look, don't waste my time. Don't waste the court's time. Uh, you've got a forum, and so we're going to dismiss this case and uh, send it back to, to California where the issues can be resolved. Um, the case itself was, was actually pretty interesting because it was a Magnuson Moss warranty claim. And that's a very specific law that involves uh, warranties and liabilities for it, and it provides for recovery of attorney's fees and significant damages. So uh, it, it's an interesting claim. It's similar to the one in California. It's uh, just you know moved out of New York, and, and I think that the judge in New York did the right thing uh, by not entertaining this lawsuit. Uh, it arises out of the endorsement of uh, one of these diet products that we've seen them on TV talking about. I believe it's Quick Trim and talks about how they personally benefited from it and, and that sort of thing. And as I'm sure you can imagine, it's not true. And uh, Kardashians most likely have never taken the product. So well, that's good that the New York courts have thrown that out so that the court system doesn't have to be bogged down with that sort of nonsense. All right, now I want to talk about um, some recent jury verdicts. These are always interesting to discuss. Uh, so this next segment, we're going to talk about three recent jury verdicts. What's interesting with these jury verdict awards is to see how a jury awards or values particular issues. Um, so the first one I want to talk about is, is a motor vehicle accident. And this is a rear-end collision that occurred in New Brunswick on August 13, 2009. And the driver of the vehicle, the plaintiff in this case, was rear-ended by another driver. And most of you may know that rear-end collisions in, in really any state, typically, and typically, there are uh, some exceptions, but typically liability is 100% on the person who rear-ended you. Uh, they have a greater duty of care, and so if you get rear-ended, there's a good chance that there's 100% liability on the, the driver that hit you. Now, in this case, the plaintiff was diagnosed with uh, various disc herniations, 
at various levels and went chiropractic, went underwent chiropractic uh, treatment and, um, you know, uh, minimal, minimal uh, medical, I, I guess, treatment. There's no surgery. There's uh, no injections. It's just a straightforward neck and back injury case with some chiropractic treatment. And the plaintiff had claimed that she could no longer drive long distances or lift heavy objects and couldn't participate in local youth sports as a referee or go hiking or, or, you know, any of these things. So essentially she wasn't in the same condition as she was before the accident. There were herniations and some bulges, neck and back injuries, no surgery. And, uh, interestingly, this is the Essex County Superior Court. The jury awarded them a hundred thousand dollars which is most likely the policy limit of the driver who rear-ended the plaintiff. So it's interesting to note that, um, you know, this injury, which, which didn't require surgery, which some people might say, oh, it's a nonsense neck and back injury, actually generated a jury award of $100,000. So that's, that's interesting. Um, the next one I want to talk about is a case out of Middlesex County Superior Court. This is, again, an auto injury. This one uh, occurred on, on Routes uh, 9 uh, in Sayreville. And, uh, again, this was a, a hit in the rear. And the uh, plaintiff was hit in the rear by a truck. And in this case, there were MRIs done. And, again, we found disc herniations at, at you know, multiple levels. Um, the plaintiff's expert, who was an orthopedic surgeon, opined that 65% of the spinal damage uh, that was was identified on an MRI, because he had some prior uh, or pre-existing back injuries, but the expert opined that 65% was attributed to uh, a first accident, and that 35% was attributed to this current accident. So the first accident where he had these pre-existing conditions uh, was already in place. So when you looked at at the bottom line here, 35% of those injuries were caused by the second accident. Hearing that story as an attorney, I would most likely say that for that type of injury, um, the, the award was probably very low, but I'm, I'm surprised to, to learn that the jury awarded the plaintiff $85,000. And if you compare this case with the case that we just talked about, same type of injuries, but in the first case, there were no pre-existing injuries, no pre-existing conditions. And that plaintiff received 100000 Here we have a case with significant pre-existing injuries, and a Middlesex County jury awards $85,000. So uh, that just goes to show you that different venues, different jurisdictions, and different jury pools are going to have a different take on very similar yet different accidents. So that's interesting. And the last one I want to talk about is a premises liability case. And when we talk about premises liability, we're talking about slip and fall or trip and fall accidents. So this one also arises out of a, a Middlesex County Superior Court uh, case, and it involved Rite Aid Corporation. And in this case, the plaintiff was shopping at Rite Aid in, in South Plainfield, and she allegedly slipped on a wet area near a cooler 
where they had ice. So it's one of these um, ice storage units that, that you can see in gas stations and uh, in Rite Aid with a sliding glass door and the bags of ice are inside. So plaintiff slipped and falls uh, on a wet area in front of the, uh, the unit and suffers a knee injury um, and, you know, it, it is injured. Um, it's interesting here because there was a pre-existing condition. She had a knee injury years ago and had gone arthro undergone arthroscopic surgery for the injury. So here again, a significant pre-existing condition. Now, in this case, uh, the plaintiff alleges that the defendant had an ice delivery, you know, at some point during the day prior to her entering the store, and that the, the water, the ice that had spilled, had been in front of the cooler for enough time that a reasonable person would have seen the spill and would have cleaned it up. Uh, and the case settled for $50,000, which is, is surprising, again, um, because there are significant pre-existing conditions. When she slipped and fell on the water in front of the cooler in this accident, she didn't even go down to the ground. She was able to catch herself uh, from falling. So this is interesting that the case would settle for $50,000, uh, but again, it highlights the fact that different jurisdictions have different jury pools. Plaintiff attorneys and defendant attorneys are concerned uh, with what a jury might do. And if you look at the um, auto accident in Middlesex County where that individual with the pre-existing conditions received $85,000, I, I think that the thought process with the attorneys on the slip and fall uh, probably was, well, look at what this this jury pool typically gives away and uh, we don't want to take that chance. So the decision was probably made that it would be better to give $50,000 for the plaintiff, even though there are pre-existing conditions, rather than let this move to trial and, um, and be stuck with a jury award that may be excessive. So it's interesting how this all plays out. Um, things are not black and white and it's, it's kind of an interesting uh, thing to, to look at and study. So next week we'll be back with more jury verdict uh, results. I want to talk now about uh, some of the upcoming events that are, are you know, that we're looking forward to. Uh, I first want to mention the sixth annual uh, congenital heart disease awareness walk, which was part uh, of the CHD coalitions fundraising efforts for children with congenital heart disease. And this happened on September 29th, uh, last weekend, and, and we participated as a firm in this. And uh, was very, very happy to report that the CHD coalition raised $91,355.48 with 828 participants. So this is very exciting. This is a small organization all of the funds, 100% of the funds, go to funding research and family support uh, for those in need uh, when, when you've got a child with a congenital heart condition. Um, I, I think this is a wonderful thing. Uh, I, I, many of our listeners know I've talked about it before. 
that my middle son has a congenital heart condition. He is a pacemaker uh, at seven years old. It was, was put in when he was six months, months old. And we looked into getting involved with things like the American Heart Association, which the firm donates money to, but it's such a big organization and the money gets spread out so thin that you really don't get to see the impact of the fundraising on, on your community. And this uh, CHD coalition is a great program, a, a great organization, because the money goes directly to those people in our community, those people who are struggling to pay um, medical bills or struggling to provide food for their family while their children are undergoing surgery and things like that. So this is a wonderful thing, and we're very uh, happy and proud to have been part of this and very pleased with the amount of money that they raise. So that's, that's a wonderful thing. Uh, they do it every year. And uh, I would strongly encourage you to look into it. I think that there's value in donating to some of these smaller local organizations. I think that you can see a direct impact on, on the people that uh, the money's meant to go to. Uh, I also want to mention October 9th, which is coming up, and uh, we are participating in the Unite Against Bullying campaign, uh, which is part of PACER's Unity Day. Uh, PACER has a National Bullying Prevention Center, and uh, we're very pleased to be part of that. So we're going to be wearing the orange T-shirts, the uh, orange Unity shirts on that day. Um, you know, we've talked last month about bullying as part of our back-to-school session, and we had some guests on. And, and so bullying is something that's very, very prevalent, very, very important to deal with, and uh you know, Pacers Bullying Day, the Unity Day, I think is a great thing. So I encourage you to go to their website and, um, you know, see what they have to offer. Learn more about Unity Day. Uh, if you're on Twitter, you know, look up hashtag Unity Day 2013 and, and you'll, uh, you know, get some understanding about what's going on with them. I think it's uh, a very important topic and a very good cause. So again, uh, October 9th, Unity Day, in an effort to bring awareness to and uh, hopefully prevent bullying. So that's, uh, that's something that's important. Um, the next thing that I want to just mention briefly is the annual coat drive that we um, are involved with for Jersey Cares. So information is going to be on our websites and social media pages uh, relatively soon, uh, but we're, we're anticipating the program to, to start in November. And we're going to be, again, an official drop-off um, center. And we uh, were very successful last year in collecting a significant number of coats, children's and adults, and we really appreciate that. We know that the people of New Jersey who are struggling uh, in the cold of winter and, and need coats and, and clothing, they, they appreciated it. So uh, we're very excited to be doing that again this year, and we hope that we have uh, a very good um, you know, result. Uh, that's all the time we have for today, and so I'd like to thank you again for joining me. Uh, we'll be back next Thursday at 10 o'clock. We'll have more legal and business news. Uh, if in the meantime you have any questions, about anything that we talked about on the air today, or if you have uh, general legal questions that you'd like to have answered, or topics that you'd like to discuss on the air, 
I would encourage you to pick up the phone and give us a call. Our number is 973-949-3770, or you can email me. Again, the email address is plamont, L-A-M-O-N-T, at peterlamontesq.com. We take all of our phone calls and emails seriously, and we'll respond to you. Um, So we hope that you join us again next week. And remember that there is power in understanding the law. Thank you. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.